Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Following the Tracks. We are your hosts. My name is Samantha Shmoda. I'm Giselle Ray. <laughs> and we're back. I bet you guys thought we quit. <laughs> we are back after a very long hiatus. We have had a chaotic last however many months it's been, but we are yeah. back. And we are back in person together. We are back in person in Minnesota. We're hanging out. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yes, we had crazy summers, mm-hmm. a lots of work, mm-hmm. lots of things. Mm-hmm. What have you been up to? Um, well, I've had a lot, a lot going on in my personal life, but what have I been up to? Spending mm-hmm. time outside. I did get to travel since the last time we talked. I went to Europe. Whoa. That was pretty cool. And hanging out with my family, who's now all happy and healthy. Woohoo! We love to hear that. Yep. Uh, what about you? What have you been up to, Sammy? Oof. You did some I, cool stuff this summer. I did get to do some cool stuff this summer. I was out in Oregon, living out there, working on a sage grouse project. What's a sage grouse for the people that a don't know? Sage grouse is not grass. <laughs> <laughs> like a common misconception. <laughs> uh, sage grouse is a bird. Sometimes people call them prairie chickens, if that helps you kind of get a mental image. Yeah, they do look like little chickens. But they are the birds where the males do their dances with the feathers all floofed out. Mm. Call their, the, the males will group up in lex and dance their tail feathers off. Nice. For the ladies. Oh, cute. Um, we didn't get to see much of that. I happened upon a couple of times the males doing that, but mostly we were just tagging, tagging the females, and then we're looking at how successful their nests were uh, and how many babies survived, pretty much, and were successfully raised. Uh, which wasn't a lot. Aww, that's too bad. <laughs> but it was still pretty interesting to play detective and see. It, we, we'd go to nests and the, the mama's gone and there's eggshells everywhere. Aww. It's just kind of, you, then you play detective and you figure out who done it. Is it a raccoon? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> the usual suspects were raven, coyote, oh. and badger. Okay. Yeah. So I badger, mean, very elusive. I feel yes, like. Yes. Yes. They're they're fun ones. Um, were the sage grouse is hard to find? You sent me a picture once over the summer, and I had a very hard time figuring out what was like brush and what was an animal. Yeah. So there would be times when we would go out, and well, we would to find that where the nest was. So the mamas had their backpacks on, their their transmitters, and so mm. we'd be we'd have our antennas and. You kind of get into a 10, 15 meter radius of like, okay, she's around here, but in my, my antenna is no longer helping me. I, you got to get your binoculars out and you just got to start scanning the ground. Oh, but you did have tracking on them. So that made yes. it easier. Oh, that's it cool. It, I mean, you got within a certain point, but mm-hmm. yeah. So then it's like, you're creeping around, <laughs> trying not to like, like literally step on the nest. Wow. Um, because the mamas will they'll sit on their nests for just as long as possible until you get too close, they'll fly away. Okay. And you don't want to do that because there's a chance they might not come back. Or Wow. Or you, if there was like a hawk flying above or a raven um, and they saw the female flush from her nest, they would probably go check it out, especially oh. ravens, and they probably find those eggs. Oh, so, smart. Lucky enough, I don't think I ever had a flush. Oh, so, good. I was... I was pretty decent at that part. 
Cool. That sounds like a fun summer but, of research. Yeah. Yeah. We got to even like see chicks here and there once they oh, hatched and cute. stuff. We'd go find them again and count how many chicks there were. But that required very early mornings. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I got to see a lot of sunrises this summer. Cool. That's yeah. kind of nice. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it was tiring, but... I, it was a little tiring, Seems but... Seems fun. It was fun. Yeah, I got to see a lot of Central Oregon in the desert. And, mm. and yeah. yeah, Central Oregon's very desert-y for people who don't know. People <laughs> yeah. think it's, like, rainy and cloudy, but it's high desert. Yeah. It so, is... Very different. Than Portland area on the coast. Yeah, it's Very not different. a rainforest. On the other side of the mountains, it's rainforest. Yeah. <laughs> but on, on the, the east side, side yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who listened to our last, our most recent episode, the one that came out last, thank you for being here again. But if you know, in every episode, we give you like a little riddle and we answer about, about an animal and we give the answer in the following episode. So if you've been hanging on trying to find out the answer to the last podcast riddle, Good for you. It's been a long time, but we're here to answer it. So for a reminder, the last riddle was, you will only find me in the high mountains, maybe while you are hiking a 14er. I am territorial, so if you get close to me, you will hear me bleat, scream, and whistle. I am often misidentified as a mouse, but I am closely related to a rabbit. So if you didn't know, some people reached out to us and told us that they knew the answer. Some people guessed it wrong. I had zero clue. Oh, okay. (laughs) The answer is an American pika. And if you don't know what a pika is, you need to Google it. They are very cute. They are like little hamsters, but wild. They are so cute. (laughs) So anyway, thank you for the people who answered. I know my dad got it right. He immediately texted me and said it's a pika. And I was like, well, perfect. Your dad is like the smartest man. I know. So, and I think my mom got it too. I think actually my mom might have texted me first. Okay, anyway, that's all I have for okay. intro. What do you? Have? And then I was gonna say, so today we are having Sydney Brankus on as our guest. We're gonna be interviewing her about her and her research for her master's degree. I was lucky enough this last summer to go and volunteer with her team and go hike out into Glacier and look at bighorn sheep. That which is what she is studying, and that was that was a lot of fun. That was super cool. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I mean, you'll hear more from Sydney in a moment, but she's doing research on bighorn sheep and respiratory diseases that they get. So we'll get more info on that from her. But it seems like such a cool topic. You know, it's sad, but it's like a lot of the stuff that we see with population decline has been about climate change, and this has nothing to do with climate change. It's just. That can happen to these sheep. So <laughs> yeah. it is It is interesting, you know. We have been obviously dealing with viruses lately in mm. in the human world. That's all you hear about these yep. days. But animals can deal with them too. And so Sid's research will hopefully um, help mitigate spread of these diseases. Yes. And here she is. Here's Sid. Don't include <laughs> that. Say your thing again. <laughs> Sydney Briggins. I'm Sydney. I'm a master's student at the University of Memphis. Um, I'm finishing up my third year, and currently I am studying bighorn sheep respiratory disease out in Montana. So I work in a couple different areas doing that. Um, The Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is over by Augusta, Montana, and then I also work in Glacier National Park and the Little Belts Mountain Range, which is where a brand new herd of bighorn sheep were introduced in 2021. Um, 
before that, I've done a ton of different wildlife jobs, technician jobs across the world, really working with wolves and crabs and sea turtles and squirrels. So pretty much a wide range of animals. That was incredible. You're a podcast natural. Okay, little background on bighorn sheep. Their Latin name is Ovis canadensis. There are, we're talking about one of two species of wild sheep in North America. The latest science shows that there are three subspecies within the bighorn sheep. There's Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep, Sierra bighorn sheep, and desert bighorn sheep. A visual on these animals, they can weigh 160 to 350 pounds, 40 inches tall. They have very wide set eyes, which provides an exceptional field of view. And they have keen hearing and a good sense of smell to detect predators. Males, called rams, have large horns that can weigh up to 30 pounds. And females have horns too, but they are much smaller. Bighorn sheep are well-equipped to climb steep terrain. They have outer hooves that are modified with modified toenails that are shaped to snag any slight protrusion with a soft inner pad that provides a grip that conforms to variable surfaces. They live in the western mountainous areas of North America. They eat grass and clover in the summer and willow and sage in the winter. And they are quite the sight to see, especially if you, if you see two rams fighting for a lady. Ooh. So have you seen that? Have I seen them fight? Yeah. Uh, I've seen animals ram each other. I haven't seen, like, during their peak times in the fall, them mm. fighting over the female and everything. I did some research on bighorn sheep hunting, and you can, it's like a, a popular thing for people to go do, but in recent years, the price for a hunting tag has gone up to, like, $400,000. So with the fall of populations due to diseases from domestic sheep, it's becoming extremely expensive to hunt bighorn sheep, which is good because there aren't as many. But for the people that do that, it can cost up to $400,000 depending on what state you go to. Yeah, it's also a lottery system, so you're not guaranteed. You get entered into a lottery and randomly selected amongst all the other hunters who've put in. So for instance, the area that I study in the Sun River Range there's two hunting tags per season and you have thousands of people entering in for those. And so they call it a once in a lifetime hunt because you're very unlikely to get it more than once if you do get it one time. That's Um, crazy. Yep. Wow. It's a big deal to hunters. (laughs) Yeah. Have you run into hunters or like people on hunting trips and stuff? Um, No, because I'm not out there during hunting season, which is in the fall. Hmm. But every time I talk to somebody about my research, they're like, oh, can you get me tags? And I'm like, absolutely not. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I do not work in that area. Yeah, that's that's really not my job. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the one other thing I would say for intro um, that we're going to be referencing the different different sects of bighorn sheep. So you have your male, which is a ram. Our females are used, and I tend to say you. A lot because my main focus is on ewes and lambs. So just throwing that out there, if people don't know what ewes are, I posted about that and people are like, I don't get your joke. I'm like, oh, like a, a female bighorn sheep is like a ewe. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have yearlings, which are, are animals that are not reproducing yet. So in between one year of age and three years, they're called yearlings. And then our lambs who are under a year. Okay, cool. Good, good background. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> okay. So can you give us a little bit of a overview on your research, like going into the respiratory disease part of it? Yeah, definitely. 
Um, so what I'm doing in my research project is I am looking, should I describe like what's going on with the disease or is that something we're going to yeah. do later? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As, yeah. Like as much detail as you, I mean, <laughs> we don't need to talk about it for like four hours, but like, or like, an, you know, like, I mean, yeah, you can like kind of give an overview cause we've got questions too for you. That's true. But dive in as deep as you want. So bighorn sheep respiratory disease is a multi-pathogen infection, which just means that there are multiple agents that we think cause the respiratory disease going on in bighorn sheep. The problem is that this disease causes pneumonia, which leads to a lot of mortality going on with bighorn sheep. And so the numbers that bighorn sheep were at in the early 90s were... Oh, I wish I had the actual number for you guys, actually. But basically what is happening is that they've decreased so dramatically that the disease is leading to extirpation of bighorn sheep from a lot of areas. So that's just local extinctions that are going on where you used to see them all over um, the west of North America. You only see them in these smaller pockets of habitat now. Um, and so... While there's been an increase in these numbers because of how much work is going on with figuring out what's going on with the dis disease, um, transferring sheep into new areas and just helping protect the sheep, the disease is leading to, basically when it comes in contact with the herd, it'll lead to 90% of mortality. So after that, you're seeing none of the lambs survive for up to decades after they do first see the disease in their population. And so you kind of see how that would be really hard for animals to come back to their normal numbers. Um, it originally came from a spillover from domestic animals. So you see domestic sheep, domestic goats, sometimes domestic cattle that come in contact with these wild animals. They transmit the disease to wild sheep. And where all those domestic animals can be healthy with the disease, so just the bacteria that's causing it, which our main one is Mycoplasma ovinomoniae, when it transfers to the wild sheep, they get really sick. Um, and then that's when you start seeing that mortality. Is is the mortality, and I don't know if you would, if you know this, but is the mortality similar with the domestic sheep, or is the domestic sheep not affected by it in the same they're way? They're not af affected by it, so they're completely healthy. They'll have it in their nose. They don't have a problem with it. They don't get sick at all. And so you don't really know when domestic animals have that have the bacteria that causes it. And if you think about all the supplements and the care that are being given to those domestic animals, like they're probably not going to see any shift, even if they get a little bit sick. Um, the problem is when it transfers to the wild animals and they get really sick from it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, yeah, these domestic sheep are, are getting the care that they need from their owners and then they're not affected by it in the same way as the wild yeah, sheep. No. Yeah. Upsetting. They do not get as sick. Are people, and again, I don't know who knows, but are people who have these domesticated sheep, is it for wool purposes? Is this like hobby? Why are these sheep out there? I didn't know like having sheep was a popular thing in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's tons of domestic sheep all across the U.S. I guess it is mainly focused in the West. I would think that, for the most part, they have them for wool collection. Okay. I don't think they eat too much sheep, like maybe lamb, but for the whole herds, the whole flocks of sheep that there are, like, I think most of that is wool production. Okay. Okay, yeah, and then 
so part of your research is going out and just observing sick herds and not sick herds. How do you tell if a herd is infected with the respiratory disease? Yeah, so that's kind of something I've been developing um, throughout my master's thesis. And so my goal is to figure out what behaviors determine whether an animal is sick or not. And so the way that I'm doing that is I have four different herds that I watch. I have a healthy herd, a sick herd, and two intermediate herds. So herds that have faced the disease and have begun recovering or are fully recovered from the disease. Um, and I compare the behaviors between those four herds. And so where I haven't fully gone into um, my analysis yet, I would say like some of the main behaviors to watch for are inactivity. So is an animal laying down a lot and just looking like it's sleeping a ton. This is really important in lambs because they tend to be super playful. They run around a ton. They have a lot of energy. Um, and if you see them laying around for long periods of time, that's usually an issue. Other things are coughing. So whenever an animal, it's not just like a cough every here and there, but they have like a full spasm of coughing. So you're watching for those bouts of coughing. Um, lambs will have droopy ears, so you'll see those ears droop down. They'll have nasal discharge going on, and then they do a lot of head shaking. So you'll see their whole head just shaking with their ears flopping back and forth, like it's a really obvious sign from far away. And so, so those are some of the big clinical signs to be watching for with the disease. That's kind of sad. <laughs> it is sad. <laughs> <laughs> so is like the head shaking, is, could that be like sneezing? They're just going <laughs> No, it's kind of like there's something they're trying to get rid of, like, I don't know, if your dog gets wet and they shake their head, they're kind of doing something like that. Mm -hmm. Or if your dog has an ear infection, you know, they shake oh. their head a ton, and that's why yeah. you take them to the vet. That's kind of what the sheep are doing as well. Sure. Yeah. And they're helpless, so they're probably just trying to do Someone give whatever them they can. Yeah. <laughs> How long does pneumonia affect the herd? <laughs> um... So pneumonia, we usually see a really quick transgression of the disease. So once they do get um, that bacteria in their system, like MOV, mycoplasma of pneumonia, they get sick pretty quickly. So within a couple of months, um, you'll see it a lot during the summers. It's kind of when the main clinical signs are coming out because the lambs have just been born and they're the ones who are more likely to show clinical signs of disease from this disease. So within probably three to four months, you should expect most of the animals that are going to die are going to be dead by then. So it's really quick, but like I said, it will last in carrier animals. So some animals aren't affected as bad by the disease, but they can continue carrying that bacteria for up to decades afterwards. So mm -hmm. all the lambs born the next year are also going to get sick and die because they have that weakened immune system. Oh, so, okay. yeah, it acts very quickly, but it can last for decades. And then, yes, so, like, years after a ewe has recovered from it, she can still pass it on? Yep. Yeah. Crazy. And then you talked about that you're watching recovering herds. Are those, are they recovering just because they happen to be healthy and there's just the numbers of the infected aren't so high, or how are they not all dying off from it? Yeah, so the reason that some of those herds are recovering is most likely because any animal that had the bacteria has died of that bacteria, so they don't have that chronic carrier that stays in their herd. And it could be just over time that they're getting rid of that bacteria. 
or um, yeah, their immune systems are just getting kind of used to what's going on there. So we don't really call it recovered until their lambs are surviving at a certain rate. So above 30% is kind of what we're looking for for a healthy herd. Got it. Okay, so you're trying to see if the lambs live through yeah, the first whatever, how however long to make sure that they don't aren't carrying this disease. Exactly. Okay. Is the so is the bighorn sheep population like as a whole in North America still in decline or do you think it's slowly climbing back up? Um, I would say that it's pretty stabilized. I know that there's multiple states that are putting a lot of effort into their big orange sheep, like Montana, where they have goals to reach a certain amount of new herds reintroduced or um, transferred herds by a certain amount of time. The problem is when they do reintroduce some herds, they can get sick, whether they've taken from a sick population or they've introduced in an area that already has disease, and that's keeping those herds from thriving once they're reintroduced. And so I think that the numbers are staying pretty stable at this point. They're not really growing or declining. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess that's better than declining. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true. I mean, yeah, it's, you, you want those uh, populations to not be too affected, especially when the tags are worth almost half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, like, the main reason they aren't declining is because of how much work is being put into them right now. So I think if everybody was hands-off, I'm not for sure how their population would be doing right now. Yeah, and I'm sure there are lots of other factors in declining their populations, like climate change, obviously, and stuff like that. So if a lot is being done, yeah, (laughs) loss of habitat. All the good stuff. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. So given all your, given the research that you're doing, so you're monitoring these herds, you're seeing who's infected and what's happening with that. What are like the actions you're then doing with this research? Yeah. So figuring out and monitoring herds for clinical signs was kind of my first step of my research. My second step was introducing it to uh, citizen science or community science, which is just a way that scientists get the public involved in doing research with them. Um, And so Basically, what I did was I found which clinical signs were indicative of bighorn sheep respiratory disease, and then I went up to Glacier National Park, and I collaborated with their citizen science program to teach a couple of members from the public how to do what I'm doing out in the field. And so we recruited about 55 people from the area, and they came to a class with me where I taught them how to do what I do in the field, so how to observe sheep, how to write down data and enter data, and what they're looking for when they are watching those sheep. And then I took them outside and we practiced doing it a couple times. So those were mixed teams that I'd send out. I would have citizen scientists and biologists out there. They would pair up and I wanted to see like how well can the public detect this disease compared to biologists. And so the way that we're moving forward is trying to figure out how to get some heavy surveillance going on for these bighorn sheep. And I think that if everything goes well with that, it would be important to get the public involved in a bunch of different areas where we are seeing disease. So Badlands National Park, places in British Columbia, we have Idaho, there's a ton of sheep that are facing this disease. And places that are not, we should still have heavy surveillance going on for the disease. So any area that kind of surrounds these diseased animals, 
just to see how it is spreading and where it is spreading so that we can try and mitigate as fast as possible when that happens. Very cool. Um, these people that you have that you trained um, as the citizen scientists, do they have background on wildlife or are they just people in the community that feel a passion for this that want to help in, in any way that they can? Yeah, a little bit of both. We are open to taking anybody. Usually we just take the first like 55 that apply. But with that, I saw people with wildlife backgrounds, um, either technicians or people who have been in the field before. I also saw a ton of people who just like to hike in Glacier National Park and wanted another thing to do while they were out there. A ton of people who have retired from other positions and just wanted to do something else during their time. So yeah, kind of... Yeah cool random people from the community who want to participate yeah that's nice I think it's like a I think that's great if uh people want to combine their hobbies with helping you with this research um that's a good way to put that stuff together my mom is actually a citizen scientist she does uh she has a swan that she follows and so she (laughs) reports to the University of Minnesota every week what her findings are like what the swan is up to so I think that it's like Something she already does, like she goes out and bird watches, and I think it's cool that you can get people to do that. And if they're just people that are hiking around Glacier and they're like really into, you know, looking for wildlife, that's such a cool way to do something with that hobby. Yeah, there's a ton of different types of projects too, depending on your interests. So like, there's a big one through Adventure Scientists that has people who go out on the river all the time in rivers all across the U.S. who collect water samples for them. And so that's another way, if you just like to go rafting or canoeing all the time, you just have to collect these little samples of water for them after training, and you could be a citizen scientist with them. So there's stuff all over the place to do with citizen science already. And people are already, like, going through these parks like the Badlands and emailing the biologists, like, hey, I saw a big orange sheep that didn't look so great, and here's a couple pictures. Like, they're already doing this. They're already interested. Like, why not have a method that's proven to work to send them out into the field to collect the information so we could actually use it to either mitigate or look into what's going on. Mm -hmm. And you spent a lot of time last summer out in Glacier National Park teaching people how to observe sheep. Was it hard to teach them that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think it was too hard. I think I also teach at the university. I'm a TA. I think it was a lot easier than that. I mean, it was something that I was super interested in that people were really interested to learn. Like, they weren't forced to be there. They choose to be there, right? So they're really excited. They ask a lot of questions. They come out and do these hard hikes with us. We expect, I think we write that you're expected to hike about 15 miles in a day. Wow. And we start super early. The weather changes a ton in Glacier National Park. And everyone was just, like, really happy to learn and to collect this information. And from the little data analysis, like, I have done, it looks like they've done really well. I think that the first one is kind of hard. I think I had a lot of questions that, how do you expect me to write the ta- time and the behavior and watch the sheep at the same time? And I'm watching, walk, like, trying to look at my watch and write this down. And I'm like... I know it's a lot. Like, <laughs> and I, I was there with you for a, a week and trying to do that. And it, it is difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but you get, the, you get the hang of it pretty quick. Yeah, it just takes practice. So I think as soon as they get a couple rounds in, they feel 
more comfortable about it. And yeah, they did. They did really well. Everyone who volunteered with me. So. And you saw a lot more sheep after I left, right? Yeah, that first week was hard because I, I wasn't sure where to find the bighorn sheep. Like, I have the data, I have the maps that tell me, like, where they're going to hang out. But it's not until, like, you see them consistently that you're like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to come back here because this is where they're hanging out right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, sorry. They were avoiding you, I think, because <laughs> that week was, like, the hardest to find bighorn sheep. Oh. <laughs> I should the big stayed horn. longer. They did not like Sammy. <laughs> we were also trying, like, to hit every spot to see what was successful and what wasn't that first week. Mm, and then yeah. after that, we were like, these were successful. We're only going here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, Scenic Point was, like, we saw the sheep there every day. And then they moved into the two medicine campground every day. And, yeah. Sitting in two medicine campground is honestly the best because you can look right over at Rising Wolf and you see bighorn sheep almost every time. And the bathrooms uh, are right there. <laughs> priorities. Super easy. Yeah, priorities. <laughs> you're in the wilderness, but you're like, where are the bathrooms? <laughs> I need that poor Highline was also really good. So, like, we'd set up scopes at Logan Pass looking over at the Highline Trail. And you, oh, like, okay. OAC, bighorn sheep, right above. There's, like, a group of males that hang out there. So. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's good. And these aren't hunted or anything either, so I think it's okay that people know where they That's are. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, something I forgot to ask is, do you, is there testing ever for this disease? Yeah, that's a good question. So there is testing that goes on with this disease. Currently, what they do is they capture herds of bighorn sheep, Um, using darts and helicopters and then they'll fly them over to like a whole team of biologists and veterinarians who will test them for the disease this includes like blood testing nasal swabs throat swabs and while that's really good in that like tells us that there is disease going on it can be a really stressful process for the animal and stress lowers your immune system so that's not really something we want to be continuously doing to animals before we even know that they might have clinical signs going on right and it can also be just like really expensive to do that and really hard to like logistically do this and so where what I'm trying to do with the citizen science tool or community science tool is just add an extra tool to managers belts that they can use before they even do that capturing Okay. Yeah, that sounds like expensive, time-consuming, stressful on animals and people. Helicopters are expensive. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the glacier biologist was saying how they used to collar the sheep in the park, but in like the 80s or the 90s, but they all died in result. So they went into that. I didn't hear too much on that, but I know it takes like a ton of paperwork and a ton of clearance to even be able to capture an animal in a national park. National parks have a lot of rules. Um, So it's different there compared to, like, wilderness areas. But still, like, yeah, the logistics of trying to do any kind of capture in a national park would be crazy to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then that's good. Yeah, versus having people like community scientists out in the field who can – write a report and just be like, I saw three lambs coughing today and turn it into the biologist. And they could be like, oh, this is something we need to watch for. 
versus you have community science out there and you, they're like, we don't see anything, then there's no reason to go out and test. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what so. I was going to say. It's like way, way easier to have what people if it's just unnecessary. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's so, yeah, it's, it'd be so much to have to actually test them for it rather than having people look at it faster, cheaper, easier. Yeah. And then what you could do is you take them and do the tests on them right after that. If you're still like, can, if you're like, I'm not for sure, like let's test them. That's true. Do something mm-hmm. about it. And do you want to talk about any other cool things that you found in the park? Not cool, but uh, no. Oh, are you talking about the disease? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, are you saying something specific? You're trying to like bait her into saying something specific. And <laughs> yeah, no, she totally is. Yeah, I think I'm cleared to say. say this. Oh my god! Like, if, if not, I can always go back and. Yeah, we'll, we always come back to it because I've told the biologist of the park. I've told the managers for the citizen science project. My advisors know. We wrote it in all our reports, so. Yeah. I think, I think it's okay. But what we did find, so when I sent community scientists out there this past summer to see if the method was going to work, we did notice a ton of clinical signs of respiratory disease going on in the bighorn sheep out there. And so this disease hasn't been seen in the park in a really long time. Their herd is thought of as a healthy population. And so it was just really interesting to see that this is something that could work because after about a month in the field, we noticed the lambs were all coughing um, and they were having these big spasms of coughs. It wasn't just like a cough every here and there. Um, They had a lot of nasal drainage. So when they walked past us, you could see like their crusty noses and everything like that. Um, And then we had a lot of lethargic behavior going on. So everything we saw had uh, clinical signs of the disease we're looking for. So that's, that's just some interesting things for the park to follow up on. I told the park and I think they sent somebody out that summer to take a look at them, and I think they're going to dive into it more next summer. So that's just something we're going to have to watch and find out. Yeah. Wow. And they were hiring a new biologist to do that? Um, a technician. <laughs> uh, yep, they're hiring a technician. I, uh, I applied for their tech jobs, so I should have emailed him and been like, I'll do it. <laughs> but I applied for a different position, and I – I don't want to say yes, like no to somebody that I like tell them specifically to hire me for, because that that feels like a burn bridge there. So, so yeah, does, okay. Does the park just handle it differently than other lands? Yeah, so I'm not quite sure how the park, like Glacier specifically, is going to handle the disease. It's okay. It's um, <laughs> Yeah. But the way that they work is differently from Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, which is different from how Forest Service is going to do it. Everyone's going to do it a little differently. They all have different rules to follow, essentially. But I think they're going to have to. That was an angsty one. No, it was bad. (laughs) I think what they're going to have to do is the same thing everyone else is doing, where you're confirming by behavior, which is what they're currently doing and what I was doing this summer with them. And then they're probably going to have to send somebody out to test for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, like just like to make sure, I guess, or to confirm it. Yeah, just to confirm it and think about what they're doing next. I think they're going to need the testing confirmation before you can do anything drastic, whether that is taking out those diseased animals mm-hmm. or 
putting collars on them just to see where they go to make sure they're not infecting other animals. Oh. Um, and so, I mean, how long do you think that this illness had been, the disease had been affecting them? Because obviously you'd think they'd see a sharp decline in their population. Or like they'd notice a sharp decline. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing about the glacier herd and what's going on with them. Because I haven't seen low numbers going on. So basically something biologists use to see if there is disease going on in the population is a lamb U ratio which just is how many lambs per you are are there. Like, what does that number look like? Because if you don't have any lambs, but you have a ton of ewes, then you probably have disease going on, right? Mm. Because they're not surviving. Only the adults are. So when I look at those numbers in Glacier National Park, their lambs are doing amazing. They're surviving. I saw them up until mid-October, and they had way above 30% survival going on with their lambs. So. Okay. They're not having a decline in population, so I don't know if that's going to factor into their decision on what to do. Or mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. It is really Maybe interesting. it's a different strain. It could be a different strain, and that's, like, we still don't know so much about this disease, and I think it's interesting because people always ask me why we don't know so much or, like, why we don't have a vaccination going on or something like that, and it's like, can you think about the amount of money we spend on human diseases like COVID and we still don't know that much about, Mm -hmm. we have like no money going into wildlife comparatively. Right. So how are we going to, how are we going to be able to figure that out? Like it changes all the time, but we do have a grad student, not at university of Memphis, but somewhere else that is looking at the gene types of these different disease strains and seeing if specific strains are leading to worse outcomes in different populations. So that would be something to look at, especially for this, if we see like clinical signs, but we're not seeing mortality rates. It'd be a cool herd to study. Yeah, that's for sure. Are animal vaccines a common thing? Like wild animal vaccines? Wild animal vaccines are not a common thing. Yeah, I've never heard of that. It's really hard to vaccinate animals like, you have to capture them and then give them a certain amount of doses and then wait this long and recapture them, even though they're in really hard terrain and it's really hard to catch them to begin with. Wow. Like we can't do food pellets because vaccines have to go out at a certain weight. So what if you have a you versus a lamb yeah. and the lamb like just chomp down those pellets, like <laughs> that would be dangerous. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's just really like logistically difficult to vaccinate okay. wild animals. Mm-hmm. That's why you don't see it very often. Wow. Yeah. Dang. Is there anything else? Like, are you are you ever reaching out to people who have domesticated sheep and being like, have you considered not? <laughs> or is that even something you've been <laughs> Have you considered not? <laughs> yeah, that's just a really politically, like, strained area, working with yeah. domestic ranchers and things like that. But a lot of people do want to work with wildlife biologists on that. So... Not so much like, can you not have sheep? It's more like, can we fence your sheep? Can we work on keeping your sheep away from wild animals? Can we put collars, like GPS collars on them? And we also have them on our bighorn sheep to see when they come in contact. Um, There are vaccination programs that are being introduced to domestic sheep as well. Because if we could 
vaccinate the source really easily, even though if they don't get sick from it, they could keep it from getting into these wild sheep populations. So biologists work a lot with domestic sheep ranchers and things like that to try and help with what's going on with the disease in the wild. Cool. That, yeah, that answered my question. That's good. That's, yeah. I'm assuming you're not going to be telling people, like, you can't have these sheep, but that's nice that you have efforts to hopefully, like, vaccinate them or uh, fence them in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We can't, we can't tell them not to do something (laughs) that they've been doing for maybe hundreds of years and passed on from parent to kid. Um, And it's also their livelihood. We can't tell them to stop working with their livelihood and what they know so they have every right to have the sheep but it would be good yeah to keep keep them the the domesticated sheep away from the big horns Mm -hmm. exactly yep yeah so you're wrapping up your research right now on your master's degree what was your favorite part about researching bighorn sheep um I think my favorite part about my research is all the time I just got to spend in the field watching them I like to be outside, and so being able to hike in Montana in some of these cool remote areas to watch a bighorn sheep and just get really familiar with this one herd for two different summers um, can be really fun, especially when I have animals who are collared who I recognize from the year before, and I get to watch them raise their new offspring and see what happens this next summer. yeah, <laughs> that's so sweet you see them grow up <laughs> you do you get to see them grow up um so I think that's probably one of the best parts I also really enjoyed the outreach so teaching classes in Glacier I get to teach people about what I'm doing and get them in the field to also do something that I love so I liked that part too yeah that that's sounds awesome, awesome. I, I yeah. would love to be a citizen scientist of yours in the summer that would be crazy <laughs> just go out there i i was for a little bit yeah it's a lot cool. of fun it's a one-week commitment so that's cool not too mm-hmm. bad they do loons mountain goats oh. is mountain goats is a big one but Wow. Yeah, did you know loons are, like, declining in everywhere but Minnesota? No. Yeah. I kind of didn't really think about where they were other than Minnesota. <laughs> Apparently not they're really in Montana. Something... Okay. And they're not doing so hot Oh, out there. no. Okay. Yeah. That's a whole other thing, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> we love loons in Minnesota. Yeah, we do. <laughs> it's one of the better places I've heard, so. Anything well, else? Sydney, thanks for joining us tonight. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for answering all of our questions. We learned a yeah. lot, um, and we are happy that you could join us. And we can't wait to see you where your research continues to take you, to Glacier again, maybe. Yeah, hopefully Glacier. We'll yeah. See. <laughs> That's sweet. And thank you, Sid. Okay. So what do you think about that? It was very interesting. I learned a lot. I went to, also went to college with Sydney, but I had no idea she was doing any of this. So it's cool to see what she's up to and also to learn more about problems that are going on in different species that are not climate change related, that are like big problems. Um, Yeah. I never really knew that animals could get diseases like that, like respiratory disease where she's like seeing them cough. Like that just seems like such a bizarre thing to me, like an animal coughing. But of course it can happen to them. It's just... We're animals. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not something I've I've ever seen in the yeah, wild. So yeah, it's no, like, same. Yeah. Yeah, and I like I tend to always lean towards climate change things because that's just 
yeah. my area of interest. <laughs> but, no, it's it's refreshing to get something else. Yeah, and I think it brings up a lot of good points on, like, things you can do to help wildlife or the environment. Like, she's having these community... I guess citizen science has switched to be your scientist. Okay, anyway. It used to be citizen. Yeah. Okay. But they're trying to be more inclusive. Oh, good, you don't have to be a citizen. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> She's having these community scientists come out and help her. So you don't necessarily need to have background or education on wildlife. You can just apply, yeah, and go out and do it. And like she said, you know, people go and hike Glacier and then this is paired with that. So you're out hiking and you're also like, oh, I see a bighorn sheep. Like now I need to record what I see its behavior as. And I think that's, that's cool and that's such a great way to get involved if you're not somebody that has the background Mm -hmm. um but you're interested like I mentioned with Sydney my mom does that and I think that's like she's a community scientist she works with the University of Minnesota to track the swan and I think that's just like such a fun thing to do and something to add to your hobbies that you already have um so if you're looking for ways to get involved you can do that my dad was mentioning that what one of the biggest ways to be a community scientist is like and even, especially for me, I guess, is eBird. Um, that's pretty much, like, free data for ornithologists or people yeah. looking at birds. I just got my 2022 recap. Oh, on eBird? Yeah. Oh, cool. I think I birded once, uh, like, tracked it on eBird Oh, okay. So. Yeah, I'm not... I, I, I definitely check eBird to, like, see... So, for people that don't know, eBird is this app website that you can use to um record when and where you see certain types of birds and you identify what the bird is you can upload photos you can put comments um and then if you're somebody that's going bird watching you can see like what hot spots there are so like if there's somewhere in your area that's seeing a lot of activity or if somewhere nearby has a really rare bird that somebody spotted um you can get information from that or you can look up a specific species and see where in your area was the most recent one that was seen. So it's just like a cool way for people to put in their bird watching findings and for... Spread the joy. Yeah, and for scientists to use that information. Like, they have this huge data collection from just people every day. Like, it's con- like people are uploading to it constantly. So check out eBird if you're a birder. And you can be your own little community scientist. Yeah, and you don't even have to be a birder. That's I, true. I don't know if I quite identify as a birder, but I do. <laughs> Maybe someone who watches birds. Yeah. I'm like somebody that hikes and then like also sees birds. Yeah. But I guess I do like But it's birds. still fun to go check it out and be able to identify species. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can always look in your local area or if you're at a state park or a national park, you can look into what community scientist opportunities there are. Maybe, you know, with a grad student studying a certain species like Sid's doing, um, that's such a cool way to get involved and add something to your hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And you've got mail. You've got mail. <laughs> You also have another riddle for us. Yes! So like I said at the beginning, we are doing a riddle at the at the end of every episode, and then we'll reveal the answer at the next episode. So today's riddle is this. It's I'm gonna I'm gonna give you three clues and it's a who am I? And you 
can submit your answers to us on Instagram or if you're somebody I see in my regular life, text me or tell me in real life. People have done that. Um, okay, here are the clues. Who am I? I am one of two marine animals in the Monodontidae family. I am extremely vocal and very social. I can change the shape of my bulbous forehead by blowing air around my sinuses. Who am I? Thank you everybody for listening and for waiting for us while we were on this brief hiatus. We promise our next episode will not have this big of a break. No, I will be aiming for a month to a month and a half after this is published. Six weeks max. Nice. Yes. We'll be back. next one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you again next time. I'll see you later. Bye. Thanks again for listening, and a special shout out to Sid. If you guys liked her content, go ahead and give her a follow on Instagram. Her handle is psherman underscore wallabyway underscore sydney, just like in Finding Nemo. And a big, big thank you to our friends Evan and Peter for creating the little jingle you heard in this episode. That's going to be the new Following the Tracks jingle, so thank you again. We really appreciate it. And if you guys haven't yet, you can follow us on Instagram at Following the Tracks. Uh, we'll let you know when the next episodes are coming out. It's a great way to keep up with us. And our sources for this show, for the background on Bighorn Sheep that Giselle gave, includes Bighorn Sheep National Wildlife Federation at nwf.org and the article on Bighorn Sheep from the Rocky Mountain National Park, nps.gov article and that's all for now see you guys in a few weeks bye one last quick shout out to dan ray we are so proud of you for being strong and getting through this and keep going